Well, good morning. I have a confession to make. I'm a sucker for happy endings. And they all lived happily ever after. That's what I like when I sit down to watch a movie on my favorite streaming service. I love watching star-crossed lovers overcome overwhelming odds. The underdog hero defeating the invincible enemy in time to make it home for dinner. I especially like a good political drama or sci-fi movie that ends with a rousing victory speech. And you know, one of the reasons I think we enjoy these kinds of movies is precisely because we know reality isn't like that. We know life isn't a fairy tale. And for 90 or 120 minutes, we can suspend our disbelief and escape a reality that feels a lot more like a Greek tragedy than the feel-good movie of the summer. Today, uh, we are going to be studying from 1 Samuel chapter 28 to 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, now would be a good time to open them. Uh, it will really help you in just a few moments. But friends, the story we're going to study today is a tragedy. It does not have a happy ending. The topic we have before us today is the final tragic end of Israel's first king, King Saul. And this story isn't some creative masterpiece of a Hollywood screenwriter. No, the brutal death of Saul, his children, and his friends was all too real. Another dark moment in the history of God's people. But like all tragedies, this one has something to teach us. Like all tragedies, we have the opportunity to see a realistic view of the dark sides of life, to identify ourselves with Saul's failure. We have the opportunity to learn from this tragedy so that we don't let it happen again. This story is exactly what I needed. I was on a mission trip when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and the preacher was talking about King Saul, the spiritual loser, who looked great on the outside, but terrible on the inside. And God, in his mercy, used that story to save me, because I saw myself in that. He used the tragedy of Saul's life to show me that if I didn't come to Jesus, that tragedy was going to be my tragedy. Now this morning, I'm going to share some more about that, um, but for now, I want to turn to our text to see what God has in store for each one of us. Now, we are going to be covering five chapters today, so I'm not going to ask you to stand and read a passage of it. Instead, what I'm going to do is just go through uh, the story as we spend our time together today. So if you've got your Bible open, I'd ask you to turn down now to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 28. The uh, story that we have picks up with a familiar scene for the Israelites. Verse 1 says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Israel's nemesis to the west was at it again. Their defeat at the hands of David when he struck down Goliath hadn't kept them at bay for long. Their armies have regrouped, they're poised for battle, and once again, Israel is an underdog. They are faced with overwhelming force. The odds were stacked against them. Look down at verse 5. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
Now, this scene isn't actually all that unusual for the Israelites. At least in the first five or six verses of chapter 28, we might be expecting God to come and rescue his people again like he's done time and time again. Maybe this story is going to be like Gideon when he defeated the Midianites with only 300 warriors. But like we've said already, this story doesn't have a happy ending. And the tragedy starts to come into view in verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, Saul turns to the Lord, but the Lord doesn't answer. And in response, we don't see the patient waiting of a king who's learned to trust in the Lord's timing. Saul's had an opportunity that, to learn that lesson time and time again, but he hasn't. No one said, we see a desperate and self-reliant King Saul turn away from the Lord and to a psychic to ask her to summon the dead spirit of the prophet Samuel. Take a look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? See, this medium knows that her visitor has come to ask her to do something illegal. The law of Moses outlaws mediums and necromancers, which is just another word for people who summon the dead. That's outlawed in Leviticus 19. If that weren't bad enough, this woman knows that even King Saul has outlawed mediums and necromancers and that the punishment for this is death. Now, if King Saul's behavior weren't bad enough in turning against the law of the Lord, he makes it worse. He responds to her objection by telling her that the Lord will not punish her. He takes the Lord's name in vain. Verse 10 says, But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Who does Saul think he is? He doesn't get to rewrite the law of God. One commentator suggested that this scene was like going out to dinner with your girlfriend and making a promise in the name of your wife. What a betrayal. The king of Israel is meant to represent God's authority here on earth. And here we see King Saul stepping in as if he is God and using the Lord's name to justify his own self-serving disobedience. Now, before we move on to the next phase of this story, I want to just take a moment and draw out an application point for us. Because while most of our Bibles might have the subtitle here, Saul and the Medium of Endor, I think I would have titled it The Misplaced Desperation of King Saul. I know that's not quite as catchy or memorable, but what we see in this passage is a desperate person willing to go to any lengths, even lengths that dishonor God, to save him from death and disgrace. And before we get too judgy, I think that we need to ask ourselves, where do we turn when we're in a place of desperation or hopelessness? 
There are still many people in this world who do turn to psychics, who do try and call back to their ancestors for hope from the dead. The Bible is pretty clear that those practices are dishonoring to God. But whether that's your particular go-to in times of despair or not, I think the question for all of us is, where do we go? Is it consistently to the Lord in prayer and in the Bible? Or do you turn to other things when desperation strikes? Do you avoid the problem by binge eating or seeking sexual fulfillment? Do you turn to alcohol or drugs? Do you turn inward and find yourself crippled by a hopeless anxiety that has nowhere to go? Or maybe you check out from reality and just endlessly watch the next season of your favorite reality show. Friends, when you're in Christ, you don't have to turn to the dead for comfort. When you're in Christ, you can approach the throne of the king who died, but of the king who rose again and is now alive. Our king, Jesus, suffered the things of this life so that we could come to him confidently in times of need. Our King Jesus promises us that when we come to him with our cares and anxieties, that he will grant us peace. Our King Jesus is seated at the right hand of God right now, interceding for us. So don't turn to the dead things of this world when you're feeling desperate. King Jesus is alive and he invites you to come into his presence in confidence with your desperation and your despair and your guilt and your shame. Why would you settle for anything less? Let's turn back to the story. After convincing this medium to move forward with her seance, something pretty mysterious happens. Samuel, God's prophet, actually appears to them. Now, we don't get any details about how or why this happens, so I'm going to refrain from speculating about that. But for some reason, God allowed Samuel to appear to Saul in this moment, and the pronouncement is the tragic end that we knew it would be. Look down to verses 15 and following in chapter 28. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Meaning, Saul, you disobeyed the Lord's command. You did what was right in your own eyes, and now you're about to lose everything. God has turned against you. Your people 
will be conquered by the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your children will die. That's exactly what happens. If we turn the page over to chapter 31, we read in verse 1, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword, and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. If that weren't enough, it gets worse. Look down at verse 8. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, I want to take just a moment and talk about what happened here. Because it may be really difficult for some of us to read that Saul committed suicide. This is an issue that's really close to home for many of us. And so I want to begin by just saying that if today you are thinking about suicide, if someone you know or love is thinking about hurting themselves, will you please come find me after the service? Will you please come find one of the elders? Please tell a friend. Remember that the church is a place to help hurting people. Please let us be that for you today. But because it doesn't come up all that often in Scripture, I do want to take a moment and just talk briefly about suicide. Now, the Bible doesn't answer a lot of the questions that people most commonly ask about suicide. So I won't be able to answer those for you today. But what is really clear in the Bible is why Christians can have hope in the darkness. See, it was really common in the ancient world for people to kill themselves after they had been defeated in battle. It was all based on honor. They felt it was better to kill themselves than to suffer the dishonor of defeat in the public eye. And the reason this doesn't make sense for Christians is that our lives begin when we acknowledge our dishonor. The Christian faith begins with the acknowledgement that we have already committed the ultimate act of dishonor. This isn't an overstatement. All of us have already done the most dishonoring thing possible. We have sinned against a holy and perfect and infinite God. And so our dishonor is also infinite. And when we acknowledge and repent of that sin, that is when we are blessed with the forgiveness of Jesus our Savior who died in the most dishonorable way possible, hanging on a cross 
so that we might be the undeserved beneficiaries of a boundless grace, an undeserved hope in the darkness that could never be extinguished. Christians don't have to kill themselves when they suffer defeat or dishonor or despair or guilt or shame because those things are the beginning of Christian freedom. Now, I know that the hopelessness of depression and shame are heavy. And I would never mean to minimize those things or try to give a simple quick fix. It's not as if by hearing those words of hope that all of your difficult emotions are magically going to disappear. But I do believe that the only possible hope for redemption from hopelessness and depression can be found in the Bible. Only in the gentle and gracious arms of Jesus, our Savior. So let me just offer a few words of encouragement for those who may be suffering today. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's Isaiah 41. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's Psalm 3. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's Psalm 34. Answer me quickly, O Lord. My spirit fails. Hide not your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. That's Psalm 143. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's Matthew 11. Now, before we turn back to the text for this morning, I do want to take one more moment here and share a bit about why this story is so important to me personally. And I especially want to talk to the teenagers in the room. See, when I was 14, I was pretty sure I had it all together. I had a full head of hair. That wasn't funny. <laughs> I thought I looked pretty good, and at least some of the girls thought so too. Uh, I was the student council president. I was on the soccer team. I could run a mile in under six minutes. I had friends. I was getting straight A's. I looked really good on the outside, and I was really proud of that. But I was empty on the inside. When I was in public, I was all smiles. But in the privacy of my own room when the spotlight was off, I was consumed by the lustful passions of my heart. I was consumed by an anxiety of maintaining this image that I had created for myself. And it turns out that my bravado didn't mean that I listened to people at all. It meant I bulldozed them. I was not kind or patient. I was entitled. And anybody who got in my way knew it. I was willing to do anything to maintain my image. I was willing to cheat or lie to people to make them think better of me. I was a train wreck, and I was headed for certain disaster. I don't know when it would have struck, but it was definitely coming for me. 
And God, in his great mercy, used the story of King Saul to show me my own pride and self-reliance. It wasn't complicated or nuanced. My testimony is simple. Like Saul, I was tall and proud, and I thought I was God. And what God showed me was that apart from him, my destiny was going to be Saul's destiny. Wholesale, tragic failure. It was then that I knew that I needed to follow Jesus. It was then that I knew that I needed a Savior who could rescue me from my sinful passions and self-absorbed nature. And oh, how free it was, how free it is, to know that I don't have to maintain an outward appearance that looks good. How free it is to know that my life doesn't depend on me. Friends, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, and he will free you from the burden of yourself. He paid my debt. This is not an exaggeration. My debt was more than I could have ever paid myself. And my debt meant that I should have died. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus died so that I could be pardoned from my death sentence, which I surely deserved. If you hear anything from the message of Saul's death, it's that being proud and tall mean nothing in the eyes of the Lord. Come to Jesus and don't let his tragic end be yours. Let's turn back to the story. Because the tragedy of King Saul is now complete. His reign had been a complete failure. If you've been with us at all for this series on 1 Samuel, you know that these last few moments of his life weren't atypical for him. They were really on brand. Saul was a disaster from beginning to end. And I think the major question that the reader is left wondering at the end of this story is what's going to happen to God's people? Didn't they end up just where they started at the beginning of 1 Samuel, under the oppressive military domination of the Philistines, without any real obedience to God's law? Has God abandoned his people? I mean, look back for a moment for how this book started. Remember it started with the song of Hannah, a song that in chapter 2, verse 9 says this, God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. If we were to stop the story in 1 Samuel chapter 31, I think we'd be inclined to think that Hannah was wrong about God after all. It kind of looks like the wicked had claimed victory. That God's anointed king was literally broken into pieces. A far cry from the strength and exaltation promised. So what do we make of this? Well, of course, the story doesn't end in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. And when the curtain rises on the second act of this story, we are reminded that Saul wasn't the last king in Israel. That actually for the last several chapters of this story, we've been waiting. We've been waiting for the newly anointed king, King David, to come to power. If you turn back to chapters 29 and 30 of 1 Samuel, sandwiched right between the story of Saul at the medium of Endor and Saul's terrible death at the Mount of Gilboa, there's a story 
kind of a curious one, about the soon-to-be King David. Chapter 29 picks up the story of David while he is still in exile. Remember that he has had to flee to the Philistines of all people because his king, King Saul, had been trying to kill him. And in the outset of the story, we're a bit concerned because the Philistines are gathering for war. And it looks like for a moment that David might be going to war with the Philistines against Israel. Now, thankfully, this gets resolved fairly quickly, and the Philistine commander thinks better of this scenario and sends David on his way. That brings us to chapter 30. Because David heads back to Israel, and when he gets there, it isn't pretty. Verse 1 of chapter 30 says this. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. Now, by way of context, Ziklag is a city in southern Israel. It's quite a ways off from Mount Gilboa where the battle was raging. When David gets to Ziklag, it's not just that he's overcome with grief at the death and destruction that the Amalekites have rained down on his friends and his family. It's worse than that because the people of Ziklag are bitter towards David for having left them in the first place. They're bitter that he didn't stay to protect them and they want to kill him. Take a look down at verse 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. Now, if you know anything about the story of King David, you know that his story doesn't actually end here. The people of Ziklag don't stone him. He does become king in Israel. And in fact, at the end of 2 Samuel, he becomes the heir of the promise of God that someone's going to sit on his throne forever. So why put this story here? What does this story have to do with anything in the history of Israel? Well, I think this story is put here to make a point. To make the point that David is not like Saul. We see that, I think, most clearly shown in verse 6 of chapter 30, where it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord God. You see, on the one hand, King Saul refused to follow the Lord's command to execute justice against the Amalekites. And so the Lord rejected Saul. But here in chapter 30, David does what the Lord tells him to do and does execute justice against the Amalekites. On the other hand, both King Saul and the future King David face impending death. But Saul in the dark of night looks for strength in the advice of a necromancer in direct opposition to the law of God. The future King David strengthens himself in the Lord. The author is setting up a major contrast between Saul and David. And it comes out in one more interesting place. I think it's pretty surprising, actually. Like I mentioned a minute ago, King Saul had forced David into exile. Saul had tried to kill him several times and in some pretty shocking ways. But David didn't retaliate against the king. He didn't retaliate against the king's anointed, or the Lord's anointed king. That was sort of the topic of the sermon last week. It was made clear several times that David had the opportunity to kill Saul and he didn't do it. 
But the author makes this point again in the first chapter of 2 Samuel. For after King Saul dies in chapter 31, we turn the page over, and the scene has shifted again back to King David. Turn over there now. Verse 1 sets the scene. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, we don't have time to get into all the interesting twists and turns of this messenger who comes to David. But this messenger is an Amalekite himself. And he is a liar. He comes to King David to inform him that Saul has died. And it's somewhat curious what he says and how he says it. But what he's trying to do is ingratiate himself to David. He tells David that he just happened upon Saul and killed him in a mercy killing. Then he took his crown and his armlet and he brought them to David, of course, out of the goodness of his own heart. Now, while that is somewhat interesting, what I think is really remarkable about this story is how David responds. Look down at verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, and so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. In fact, David sings a song of lamentation. In verses 19 to 27, he says, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. You see, David here is remembering with joy the friendship of Saul and Jonathan, the love that he shared for them. He remembers their strength and victories in battle. And he laments that all that's left of them is their weapons lying in the dust. So how does the future king respond? He doesn't celebrate that he's finally free from this persecution. He doesn't rejoice that his turn to be king has finally come. No, David laments the loss of the life of his hunter. Not only that, he puts to death the person who claimed to have killed the Lord's anointed. The law of Moses explicitly condemns killing the Lord's anointed, and David doesn't hesitate to enforce that law. So there we have it. The contrast is complete. King Saul refused to follow the Lord's command to execute justice against the Amalekites. And the Lord rejected Saul. The future King David does what the Lord commands. Both King Saul and the future King David faced impending death. Saul, in the dark of night, looks for strength in the necromancer. The future King David strengthens himself in the Lord. King Saul tries to kill the Lord's anointed one time and time again. But David does everything he can to avoid killing Saul, enforces punishment on the one who does, and laments the loss of his king. So why go to all this trouble to make this comparison? I mean, we get it. Saul was a terrible king. When you look at the history of the world, this isn't really all that surprising. It's not anything new. There are lots of terrible kings. So why are we focused on this one? Well, remember that Saul was a failed experiment for the people of Israel. God had told them they didn't need a king, that he was their king. But the people of Israel insisted. 
And not only that, they chose a king that they wanted. They chose a king based on worldly standards. And so God is giving them exactly what they asked for. You pick a king based on worldly standards, you pick a king who's tall, who's powerful, who looks like every other king in this world, and this is what you get. You pick a worldly king, you get a worldly result. Because honestly, Saul's kingdom ended up like every other worldly kingdom ever. But it's in this contrast between Saul and David where we're also meant to find some hope. See, against the backdrop of the tragedy of Saul's death and Israel's defeat is a new king. Not like the one that the people of Israel chose for themselves. Here we see King David coming to power. Another example of God choosing the unlikeliest of instruments to accomplish his purposes. See, God picks a king who's a shepherd boy. God picks a king that nobody else would have ever thought would be the one to lead Israel. God picks a king that's after God's own heart. I want to draw your attention back to Hannah's song for a minute. Because Hannah not only sang about the coming judgment of God against the wicked, her song was also about this changing places of the mighty and the humble. Something Tim Keller called the great reversal. Verse 4 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel says this, The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The Lord makes poor, and he makes rich. He brings low and exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. God looks upon the lowly and the mighty fall. That's what Hannah's song was about. And we see that played out in the contrasting images of King Saul and King David. The mighty have fallen, but the humble have been chosen. And friends, this type of reversal is going to be emblematic of God's kingdom forever. In God's kingdom, as our own Matt McCullough once wrote, God consistently confounds the wisdom of the wise, bringing strength out of weakness, joy out of sorrow, and ultimately, life out of death. So what does this mean for all of us? What can we take away from this ancient contrast between two types of kings? Well, I think the main application for us is a question that all of us need to answer for ourselves. Who do we want to be our king? And honestly, that's a question you have to answer because somebody's always in charge. And not only that, one of the most beautiful and wonderful things that the Lord has given us is agency to decide who we're going to follow. Now, on the one hand, you might say, nobody is in charge of me. I get to be in charge of myself. That would be one thing you could say. And even in the light of political or military oppression, you can say, nobody can take away from me the right to determine who I am. If that's your tendency, as it is for so many of us in the modern West, I would remind you about the story in the book of Judges. You see, God's people tried this out for a while. And the problem with the, you being in charge of you is everybody else gets to be in charge of themselves too. And that's where things get ugly. Because in Israel, in the book of Judges, everybody got to do what was right in their own eyes. And this led to a total 
moral failure of their society where might made right. The Bible is pretty clear about what happens when our own sinful desires are the ultimate authority to which we answer. We become enslaved to our own passions and we choose a path apart from God. And that ends tragically every time. So then, another answer you might make to who, will grant you, or you, who you will grant authority over your life, to whom you will swear allegiance, is a kind of worldly wisdom. We might be inclined to look to the powerful, to the wise, to the charismatic or the wealthy, whether we call them a king or a president or a guru or an influencer. I actually think in our modern culture of political tribalism, we all need to be really careful of putting our hope in political candidates who bear striking resemblance to King Saul. Tall, powerful, and devoid of any godly humility. In that case, the object lesson of 1 Samuel is pretty clear. That road also ends in wholesale failure for God's people. Now let's do a quick heart check. Which candidate did you think I was talking about? <laughs> I promise I wasn't talking about only one of them. Because I think if you were going to summarize the main point of this text, you might be inclined to say the overarching point is that bad kings die and let us down. That's partially true, I think. I'd like to make a friendly amendment to that. You see, I think the overarching point of this text is that all kings die and let us down, except for Jesus. Because, of course, the Bible gives us another choice to make. We can swear allegiance to ourselves and our own desires. We can swear allegiance to a worldly wisdom. Or we can swear allegiance to God's king, King Jesus. Now, in our passage for today, we only get a glimmer of that eternal hope. In the coming weeks, as we study 2 Samuel, we'll start to see more fully how God intends to bring his kingdom to fruition. But ultimately, God's anointed King David is just a prequel to God's true anointed King David. Now, if you don't know about this kingdom of God yet, it is ruled by the most humble and most glorious king. Like David, Jesus was a shepherd. Oh, he was a carpenter. Like David, who was a shepherd, King Jesus was a carpenter both of them from the tiny country city of Bethlehem. And the earthly rule of King Jesus was surprising by earthly standards. He didn't come to exert political or military dominance over the wicked oppressors of his age. No, he came to free us from something much more problematic. Jesus came to set us free from sin and from the curse of death. Now, don't get me wrong. In the kingdom of God, we still have to swear allegiance to our king. We still have to obey his commands, but unlike other kingdoms in this world, that allegiance and obedience are the most freeing thing that you will ever know. Remember the great reversal that Hannah sang about? It's the same great reversal that Mary, the mother of Jesus, sings about in Luke chapter 1. She sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. You see, in the kingdom of God, the brokenhearted are healed 
and the proud are cast down. The rich are bankrupt, but the poor in spirit can come and drink from the fountain of life without money. In the kingdom of God, the wisdom of the world is foolishness, but Christ crucified is the wisdom that we know. So just to make this point crystal clear, ultimately the great reversal that we've been reading about today is in the death of the proud King Saul, but the exaltation of the humble King Jesus. Let me read you a short passage from Tim Keller's book, Hope in Times of Fear. Keller writes, The incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus is good news because of the wondrous love he showed in exchanging places with us. He came from heaven to earth that we might go from earth to heaven. He was rich and became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. He became sin so that through his becoming sin we might become the righteousness of God in him. His curse is our blessing. When we started today, I told you I was a sucker for a happy ending. Well, it turns out there's only one happy ending worth waiting for. Because the great reversal of the kingdom of God isn't just about this life, it's about eternal life. Yes, the brokenhearted are healed. And yes, the humble are exalted. But the greatest of the great reversals is this. Jesus died to conquer death that we might have eternal life. And in this kingdom, all the world and all of human brokenness will be healed. And there will be justice and righteousness and peace. So where does that leave us for today? Well, this passage may need to be a warning for you. It may need to be a warning not to trust in worldly wisdom or strength. It may need to be a warning that what looks good on the outside isn't what God sees. God sees your heart. And if you are someone who's relentlessly trying to maintain an image on the outside but feels empty on the inside, come to Jesus, friends. That's what I needed to hear. This passage may also be a comfort to you. If you're feeling downtrodden and spiritually bankrupt, if you're feeling weak and lowly, then what you need to hear from me this morning is that the tragedy of King Saul isn't your tragedy because you were spiritually bankrupt like he was. No, the comfort you need to hear is that if you are spiritually bankrupt like Saul was, then God has made a better way for you through Jesus. For in his kingdom, the weak are made strong because of Jesus' strength. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, if you don't yet consider yourself a follower of Jesus this morning, I hope this message will serve as an invitation to you to approach the throne of grace with hope. Because Jesus tells us when we come to him in repentance and faith, he will transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Because in him we have forgiveness of sins. So as we close for today, the question I hope you'll leave thinking about is this. Who do I want to be my king? For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, 
to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come quickly, we pray, and help us while we wait. It's in the name of Jesus we ask these things. Amen.